I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers and Company, scientist, mother, and activist Sandra Steingraber faces jail time to protect our kids from toxic trespassers in the environment. My job is to go out there and stop it, to tell my children, look, climate change is a serious problem. It's a threat to your future, but mom is on the job. We have an obligation, um, those of us in the public health community, to ring the alarm bell about this and say that shattering the bedrock of our nation and injecting it with toxic chemicals to bring bubbles of methane out of it is just not the way forward. It's a temporary solution that takes us nowhere good. When we take away water, when we take away air, all bets are off. Thanks for joining us. This week in the streets of Boston, we were reminded once again that civilization is too often a thin veneer stretched across the passions of the human heart, with those who would commit acts of violence trying to disrupt and even destroy the fragile commons we call society. Fortunately, there are people who will not be deterred from the work of civilization, who will even from time to time go up against authority in peaceful disobedience, taking a nonviolent stand for a greater good. People like Sandra Steingraber, my guest. We met for this conversation the day before she was to be sentenced to jail. It's quite a story. At the age of 20, Sandra Steingraber was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Several other family members also had the disease, but it couldn't be genetic because she's adopted. So Steingraber suspected something toxic in her Illinois hometown's drinking water, and that led to an unusual wager. She talked about it in this 2010 documentary. As a college undergraduate, I made a bet. I bet that my cancer diagnosis had something to do with the environment in which I lived as a child. And I think I was right about this. 10 years ago in the fall of 1998, I gave birth to a child. I became a cancer patient at 20 and the mother at the brink of 40, which I know isn't how most people's lives are ordered, but that's how mine worked out. I am betting that in between my children's adult lives and my own, an environmental human rights movement will arise. It's one whose seeds have already been sown. Sandra Steingraber wouldn't stay silent. Today, she's at the very heart of the environmental human rights movement that she prophesied. She's fighting to identify and eliminate carcinogens in our air, water, and food, and to stop fracking, that controversial extraction of natural gas from deep beneath the earth. She's one of the Seneca Lake 12, a group of activists who last month blocked the gates of a natural gas storage facility in the beautiful Finger Lakes region of New York State. On a bitterly cold day in March, they were arrested as they demonstrated against the environmental dangers of fracking and the storing of natural gas in nearby abandoned salt mines. For now, New York has declared a moratorium that prohibits fracking in the state while studies are completed. But there's no guarantee that gas obtained by fracking elsewhere won't be stored in those salt caverns. As you can see, for Sandra Steingraber, there is no line between her life and her cause. When her cancer went into remission, she became a biologist and wrote the book, Living Downstream, an ecologist's personal investigation of cancer and the environment. Her pregnancy and the birth of her daughter, Faith, led to this combination memoir and study of fetal toxicology, having faith, an ecologist's journey to motherhood. And her son's childhood inspired her latest work, Raising Elijah, Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis. Sandra Steingraber is a visiting scholar at Ithaca College. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. There were 12 of you arrested. Five have already appeared in court and paid a fine of $375. Why don't you pay a fine, go home and call it a day? Well, my feeling about civil disobedience is that um, it, it works when not only you oppose something and peacefully uh, object to it, but also if the law itself is unjust. And so in this case, I believe that the laws around trespassing are unjust. And so um, accepting a jail sentence um, it seems to me, the, for me, um, 
the way I can best bear, bear witness to that. What will your children do while you're in Well, here? I have a great marriage. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. uh, and so, as my husband says, there's a reason, you know, that kids have two parents. Yeah, exactly. uh, And so, as I've told my children in, in, in the days leading up to this, that uh, if it is ever the case that I can be a better parent to you in jail rather than out of jail, I'm ready to be that parent. You were arrested, as you say, for trespassing. You broke the law. You knew you were breaking the law. What, what did you hope would happen? Well, the 12 of us um, blocked a driveway uh, that uh, a company is uh, called Energy is using um, to prepare abandoned salt caverns that are underneath the west bank of Seneca Lake. We've been salt mining in the Finger Lakes area of upstate New York since the 1900s. Um, 1800s actually, it goes back a long way. Um, and so there are these ab abandoned underground chambers um, that are now being repurposed for the storage of compressed hydrocarbon gases that are the, uh, the byproducts of fracking for natural gas. Um, these are things like propane and, but and butane. And so I believe, uh, as do many of my colleagues in the sciences, that the, uh, it's not safe um, to uh, compress explosive gases and store them uh, underneath and beside a lake that serves as a drinking water for 100,000 people. Uh, and so for me uh, to come to this place and with my body um, uh, block a truck that had a drill head in the back of it um, from doing its work was a statement that I was making about the nature of trespass. Uh, in fact, from my point of view as a biologist and a mother, this out-of-state company that has bought all this, these hundreds of acres along the west bank of this lake near which I live is, it, is trespassing in our community. Um, what did you hope to accomplish by standing in the way of the trucks going into that property? Well, I have sort of internal and external goals, I think. Uh, first of all, my own son was born um, just down the road from where I committed this act of civil disobedience. Elijah. Elijah. And so returning to this same lakeshore to do something else with my body, to use it as a form of speech, to stand between, uh, and it was a howling blizzard you know, the day we did this, so it was also a physically extreme thing to do. I was very cold. Um, but to place my body in between this truck and where this truck wanted to go um, to prevent this company from engaging what I believe is an act of toxic trespass into our community was, was spiritually meaningful for me. And I was... It was also political, wasn't it? And it was, an, it was also intended to be a political statement. To say? I have worked very hard as a biologist and as a citizen to bring data forward. Um, I have uh, submitted petitions, I have written letters, I have testified about um, the dangers that this kind of storage of explosive gases creates when you use salt caverns as the receptacle. Um, and having overturned all stones for redress of grievance, I find that the regulatory system itself is unresponsive and deaf to the petitions of citizens and scientists. For example, this, given that this uh, company has already had accidents at this site, given that it is dumping um, chemicals into the lake and that there has been no response, um, is troubling. It's also troubling to me as a scientist that the, some of the knowledge about the geology of this area is considered now by the company as proprietary business information, which means that citizens and scientists who wish to offer comment uh, to our government about the plans of this company have no access to data and information that we really would help inform our uh, thinking about whether or not we wish this company to be one of our neighbors. Presumably the driver of that truck was a hard-working man, a father, perhaps a grandfather himself. Were you comfortable keeping him from doing his day's labor? I think if you are preventing someone from getting to their work, your reasons better be good ones. Um, and uh, the possibility that the work that he was doing would create a menacing situation um, leading to the possible catastrophic collapse of uh, one of these salt chambers 
and the destruction of a lake that provides drinking water to 100,000 people rose to that, rose to that level. And I feel uh, obligated to protect water, not just for me, but for those who come after. And I'm animated in this feeling not only because I study ecology and I have a kind of long view as an ecologist, but also I'm aware that I myself as a child drank contaminated water, which may indeed have led to my own cancer diagnosis. And um, in researching the history of my own hometown, discovered that in, uh, Illinois. in Illinois, right, that decisions were made 100 years ago, 80 years ago, before I was even born, that were careless, that allowed chemicals to, like a falling curtain, to seep into the drinking water aquifers there. Uh, I drank that. Um, other people drank it, and it raised risks uh, to our health. Um, I'm having had bladder cancer at age 20. I'm now 53. I've lived for 33 years as a cancer patient. Of all human cancers, bladder cancer is the one most likely to recur. So I'm forever in and out of the hospital. And so I'm always aware, as somebody who lives a highly medicalized life, first of all, that there is uh, a high economic cost to, to creating um, medical problems, chronic medical problems in people. Um, so we can talk about the economic benefits of fracking, but if we're making people sick and we're, make, we're giving people cancer, if we're giving people asthma, um, if we're contributing to preterm birth and so forth, then we, are we not creating um, medical costs uh, in addition? What response have you had from state officials? Because you've been something of a pain in the rear to them. <laughs> Um, well, I hope I've also uh, provided them some good science. Uh, but I saw one exchange where you were very frustrated. You were trying to confront a representative of New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation. I wasn't, uh, didn't start off angry. I had uh, important questions that I wanted to ask. And the frustration that many of us do feel in the, in the scientific community in New York, especially the public health community, is the many questions that we have raised about the public health risks of fracking have gone unanswered. But here's what the industry says, the American Natural Gas Alliance. Fracking wells have a smaller surface footprint, therefore requiring half as many wells as was needed 20 years ago. The process is far safer for the environment than other forms of fossil fuel extraction, such as strip mining. The chemicals used in fracking are highly diluted, and natural gas is clean and abundant, and fracking will provide many needed jobs. That, in a capsule, is their response to you. Yeah, and, well, that's the, um, the promotional language that, that fracking has been unrolled uh, across our nation. But the data tell a different story. Um, one of the, uh, my biggest concerns is what fracking does to air quality. Um, we have some new data coming out of um, Wyoming, uh, as well as some of our other western states like Colorado, showing that drilling and fracking operations are um, almost always accompanied by spikes in ground level ozone um, smog. And this kind of air pollution kills, we know that. Uh, and so we could, through a health impact assessment, um, estimate how much ground level ozone and air pollution would be created through drilling and fracking operations and all the attendant technology that goes along with it, compressors, um, flare stacks, diesel engines, and so forth, and run the numbers to see how many more additional children will have asthma, what will the heart attack and stroke risk be, how many more emergency room visits, and so on. And we could even monetize those costs. Um, but so far, we've, we in the scientific community have been un successful in our petition that this kind of science should go forward as a precondition for making a decision about whether to lift the moratorium here in, in New York or not. So in, as a substitute for a, a comprehensive health impact assessment, instead our Department of Conservation asked the Department of Health to review um, a document that we in the scientific community don't have access to it to yet. You were talking about a secret study. A in that secret video. study, right. So I've never heard of this actually in public health. How can you have a secret public health study? It seems almost a contradiction in, in terms. So those of us who actually live there, who are parents who have children there, um, and who are also 
members of the public health community um, who have scientific questions, we feel very frustrated. I have worked for 20 years on toxic chemicals and what we call toxic trespass. And over and over again, we have brought very good science um, into the public. Um, we have brought it before the presidents. We have brought it before Congress. And over and over again, the regulatory system has proved impervious to our petitions. It is a broken system. Um, it cannot respond to new science. Um, it can't respond to, um, it, it, it can't sort of evolve to, to say, all right, here's new evidence that this chemical is linked to preterm puberty in girls or early uh, preterm labor in women or um, to learning disabilities and so forth. There's nothing in our laws that um, take in that new information um, and say it's time to redesign our economy so it does not have to depend on chemicals right. that inherently cause childhood developmental problems. So, so that's one source of frustration for me. At the same time, um, we have climate change, right? And so the way I see this, we have two separate environmental crises. You call it climate change. I think we could appropriately call it climate chaos today. Or climate instability, yeah. yes, that's right. The, the environmental crisis it seems to me like a tree with two trunks. On, on one of these trunks is toxic trespass. So all of us are... Toxic are, trespass. Toxic trespass. You've used that several times. <laughs> what is it? Well, it means that chemicals without our consent um, are, are enter our body, um, sometimes because we inhale them. You know, each of us breathes a pint of atmosphere with every breath. And so that is one way in which toxic air pollutants then enter us, into our bloodstream. So the other um, trunk of this tree of crisis is, is climate instability, in which, uh, which is created, of course, by the combustion of uh, fossil fuels um, and their buildup in our atmosphere such that we're uh, trapping heat and that heat is being absorbed by the ocean, um, uh, warming the ocean, but also uh, acidifying the ocean in ways that are um, now precipitating mass species extinctions. And the, the main actors in the story of climate instability are carbon dioxide and unburned methane. Um, which and is, fracking affects And them? fracking affects both of those, of course. And, um, first of all, uh, natural gas is methane. Uh, and to uh, blast it out of the bedrock uh, and extract it and put it into pipelines and process it and get it to market so that we can make our tea kettles whistle much methane is lost to the atmosphere in that, um, during that time. Methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, more than 20 times more powerful over a 100-year period. And so uh, as far as I can see then, this tree of crisis has um, a common root, which is a kind of ruinous dependency on fossil fuels. You are confronting here the momentum of capitalism. We're creating uh, commodities and wealth require the processes that are sometimes dangerous to us or that provide economic benefits. I read in, in preparing for this conversation, I read the story of one fellow who's been working at odd jobs, taking welfare when he must, who's now expecting a windfall of up to $300,000 a year for the next decade from a lease he signed for fracking with Chevron. Now, do you really expect him to turn that down? Well, once we get to the, the level of, uh, to the end of the process, where we're asking uh, a desperate farmer to uh, turn away from uh, looking at the bedrock under his feet as a bank account, you know, as a pinata that could be shattered uh, to make money so he could retire, so he, could, we have, he can send his children to college. We've, we've failed, right? We've failed. And so I'm, I'm far more interested in going upstream and, and looking at this as a design problem to say, um, all right, so we've had our run of fossil fuels um, and we've become incredibly dependent on them to, to make stuff for us, right? So uh, the vinyl siding on your house is made out of 
um, natural gas, right? Anhydrous ammonia, which is used uh, as synthetic fertilizer uh, in our wheat fields, in our corn fields, also made out of natural gas. So we have created an agricultural system that rides a tandem bicycle with the fossil fuel industry. We have created a materials economy and surrounded ourselves with materials um, that are essentially fossils that we're exhuming from the earth at, uh, at a way that um, is not sustainable. They're called non-renewable for a reason. Um, and so it's time to engage human ingenuity to do something entirely different. And, and that's where I'm interested in working, because it seems to me when I look back at history, we have in the United States faced other times where our economy was ruinously dependent on some kind of abomination. And of course, slavery would be the, would, would be the one I would use as my example here, um, where people had to rise up and say that even though millions of dollars of personal wealth is bound up in slave labor, even though slave labor offered us the lo lower prices of goods, offered us ability to be competitive in the world market, it, 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 it's, a, it's wrong to do that. And, and instead of trying to regulate slavery, control slavery emission rates, have state-of-the-art slavery, we decided to take an abolitionist approach to that. So I named my son Elijah, you know, after uh, an abolitionist from my home state of Illinois, Elijah Lovejoy. A great who, newspaper editor. That's right. <laughs> so I, I, I learned this story when I was growing up. Every Illinois school child learned this story. Uh, Many in Texas as well. Well, it's, he's, he plays a, a role, of course, as a, uh, a not only as an abolitionist, but as a defender of uh, our First Amendment rights. Um, ultimately killed by Ultimately a pumped full of five bullets uh, in the free state of Illinois, you know, just downstream from where I grew up. Um, for daring to write and speak out against slavery. Um, uh, but his uh, best friend, um, who was then the president of Illinois College, uh, in response to the death of Elijah Lovejoy, turned his home into a station on the Underground Railroad. And his best friend's sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe who went on to write Uncle Tom's Cabin, and so... Unintended consequences of taking the <laughs> That's right. Doing the right thing we, at the right moment. And you can't always predict, right, of the power and ins inspiration that your, your words will have. Of course, his words affected John Brown, it affected the abolitionists in Boston and so forth. And so when I had to pause for a long time, in fact, it took me three long days after Eliza's birth before I actually named him Elijah, uh, after Elijah Lovejoy. It's, it's a hard thing to name your son after someone who was martyred. Um, but I wanted to, uh, when I say my son's name, I wanted to remember that change is possible, that when you stand up and do the right thing and ask for something to be redesigned, um, that that's an, an, a noble and, and right thing. Here's what you're up against. The energy industry very easily got a loophole placed in federal legislation just a few years ago, which exempts fracking from many of the country's major yes. environmental protection laws, including the Safe Drinking Water Act. Is that correct? That's right. So what does that tell you? Well, what it means is that it's an outlaw uh, enterprise, that it, it, is, it has succeeded in uh, exempting itself from our nation's foremost environmental laws, so our federal government doesn't have um, much control or power over this industry. Here's what I take to be the startling point in your new book, e Raising Elijah. You say that our chemical regulator system has ground to a halt. Only 200 of the more than 80,000 synthetic chemicals used in the United States have been tested under the Toxic Substances Control Act of 1976, and exactly none of them are regulated on the basis of their potential to affect infant or child development. Right. So the science moves forward at a much rap more rapid rate than this law can respond to the science. And so when the Toxic Substances Control Act came into being, we didn't understand, as we do now, that chemicals can enter the story of child development as, starting with the embryo, right, as this kind of opera of development begins, and genes are turned on, 
um, through the actions of hormones. Uh, our DNA uh, is, we now understand, more like the keyboard of a piano than it is the master molecule of a cell, right? We used to think that the DNA was just sort of locked in the cell and it was the command center that sent out messages for all of our bodily functions. The new science shows us that environmental signals from the outside world uh, are, like the keys of, are like the hands of the pianist who, uh, depending on what the signals are, of course you can play jazz or you can play a Bach cantata. And so our, our genes are turned on and turned off they're made to sing more loudly or the volume of their activity goes down depending on the environmental signals they receive. So we've become to see our genetics and our in the environment that we inhabit as, as partners. Um, and uh, so that's our new scientific understanding, but we don't regulate chemicals on the basis of whether or not they alter the way a brain cell migrates during early infancy, which could lead to a learning disability, for example. One of the most harmful toxins is atrazine. One of your peers at the University of California, Berkeley, Dr. Tyrone Hayes, who is featured in your film, Living Downstream, and he says, quote, there's almost no aquatic environment, including rainwater, that's atrazine-free. Here he's speaking about that toxin. We've always worked in, in what I call ambient levels of atrazine. So we've always worked with levels that you would find you know, in your drinking water, for example. Effects have been shown in fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. So every vertebrate class that's been examined, atrazine has these endocrine disrupting effects that include impairment of reproduction or lowering reproductive success and performance. All those pesticides that have run off the crops are in that water, destroying immune systems, destroying reproduction, lowering sperm count of frogs. But the first species exposed to those same pesticides are humans and they're exposed at much, much higher levels. Well, atrazine is one of the weed killers that we use in the United States, and it's, it's either the number one or number two weed killer. Uh, and interestingly, it's uh, banned for use in the European Union. Uh, and, and that's because even though we, of course, don't photosynthesize the way plants do, the weed killer um, has the power in our bodies to be biologically active. In a plant, what, it, what atrazine does, it actually halts photosynthesis itself. Um, in us, it has the ability to mimic hormones and alter gene expressions um, in ways that uh, there is evidence from the laboratory can raise the risk for harm. So the question becomes with a chemical like atrazine, how much harm and evidence for it do you want before you say, we're not going to allow this? So do chemicals like people, uh, are they innocent until proven guilty? Are they allowed on the market first until we can prove by dying or by harm children that the chemicals should not be on the market? Or are we going to create preconditions to say that before a chemical can be marketed, you have to demonstrate through careful testing that almost certainly no one is going to get hurt? <clears throat> Most people would agree that the second way of doing things is the ethical, rational way to go forward. And, and a lot of people are surprised to learn that that's not how we do things in the United States. There's a scene in the film, Living Downstream, where you go back to your hometown in Illinois to speak to farmers and other town folks at a town hall meeting. Here it is. This is breast milk. In this jar of milk are all kinds of growth factors whose job it is to stimulate the development of the brain and to stimulate the development of the digestive tract and to stimulate the development of the immune system. Breastfed infants grow into children who have lower risk for autoimmune problems. So now I want to talk a little bit about breast milk from a chemical point of view. In this jar is the most highly chemically contaminated human food on the planet. It has more dioxin, more toilet deodorizers, more moth-proofing agents, dry cleaning fluid, pesticides, and PCBs than any other human food. And they didn't get there on purpose. They were carried to us by ecological forces outside of our individual control. They represent a form of toxic trespass. Talking about children's well-being, I think, is a, a good place to begin a conversation um, about these issues, especially in places that are animated by right-to-life issues, right? And so 
I'm not a member of the Right to Life community, um, and yet having grown up in that community, um, I do respect those who, whose paramount concern is the sanctity of fetal life. I look at it as uh, an issue of a woman's reproductive rights, like you know, a woman's body is the incubator and the first environment for a child, and that surely the, the flip side of Planned Parenthood is to be able to plan a parenthood and carry it out without other people's toxic chemicals interfering with it. But whether, like me, you're someone who sees this as a, an issue of women's reproductive rights, or whether, like members of my family, you see it as an issue of fetal sanctity, the, the, I think we can have a conversation about what it means for chemicals to cross the placenta and enter um, the opera of, of embryonic development um, in ways that can sabotage pregnancy, um, so in some cases, extinguishing pregnancy itself um, through miscarriage um, and some of our farm chemicals, um, some of the chemicals associated um, with uh, drilling and fracking operations are linked in laboratory studies to those effects. And so I think what we can say is, look, any chemical that has the power to extinguish a human pregnancy has no place in our economy. We need to f identify these chemicals and, uh, and phase them out. Uh, and, and so that, I think, is a, 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 play, a starting point um, that is a, has the ability to unify a lot of people across political lines. So talk to me about what you mean with the term in here, the new morbidities of childhood. So there have always been chronic illnesses that have affected children, but never as many as there are now. So we see increasing rises in the new morbidities, which include things like asthma. You know, we now have uh, an increasing number of children who are affected by asthma. One in 11, one I think I 11. read in your book. Yeah. And one in eight children uh, who are affected by preterm birth, preterm birth being um, the number one cause of infant mortality and the number one cause of disability in this nation. We have increasing numbers of children on the autism spectrum, now one in 110 children autism. are autistic, yeah. yes. Uh, and we have uh, one in 10 girls going, uh, white girls going into puberty before age eight and, uh, and, an, and an even higher number of black girls. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that um, the, the pathway to sexual maturation is changing. And that has lifetime consequences. Um, first of all, early puberty uh, raises the risk for breast cancer in adulthood. Um, but also, uh, when the, the body, of course, changes during puberty, but our brain also changes mm -hmm. under the guidance of sexual hormones. In fact, you grow a whole new brain during puberty. The childhood brain, the juvenile brain, um, is actually much better than the adult brain at doing certain tasks. Um, for example, learning a foreign language, uh, learning an athletic skill, and learning music. When you go through puberty, your, the, the pattern of your gray matter and white matter actually changes. Um, old connections are pruned away, new brain connections are made, and that allows for other wonderful things. You learn calculus better after puberty. You, you know how to think philosophically and um, how to uh, balance complex moral issues uh, and think abstractly better after puberty. So there's some things you gain um, in terms of intellectual prowess, but some things you lose. And so by speeding up the onset of puberty, we're altering the way children learn, not only um, whether or not they appear to be um, sexual adults or not, right? And so if girls now have one and a half fewer years um, before puberty, then that raises questions in my mind about what we're robbing them of. Are you suggesting environmental factors are only causing these changes? I'm saying environmental factors are contributing to the change. So the same chemicals that can cause a hastening of sexual maturation in lab animals are in the bodies of our children, and we know that patterns of um, the timing and tempo of puberty in our children are changing. And I think it's a picture that raises ethical questions. I mean, I as a mother have a lot of control over what I feed my children, especially when they were young. I'm the buyer of the groceries, I'm the family cook, and I get to say what's on the plate. 
Uh, I also get to say um, whether or not you get to have dessert or whether or not my kitchen's closed and so on, right? Um, however, I'm, I'm, although I'm a conscientious parent, I'm not a HEPA filter, right? I can't stand between the bodies of my children and the 207 different brain poisons that are legally allowed to circulate uh, in our economy and find their way into, um, into the air, into the water, and into the food. And so rather than trying to turn my own house into a kind of toxic-free bubble, I'm m more interested in toxicity not being a consumer choice. Toxicity not being a consumer choice? What do you mean? Well, I mean that uh, as, as things stand now, uh, if I want to uh, ensure that the objects inside my house uh, don't affect my children's development, I can look, on, look up websites, I can do all the research and so on, and I can buy the, you know, the organic crib mattress and on and on. Um, but I don't have, practically have the time as a busy working mother to vet every single birthday party goodie bag that comes into my house. Um, and uh, on a larger level, I think that if we have evidence for harm, then the right response is not, well, let's create a website so that certain mothers of certain educational levels and income can opt out of that. But rather, it becomes our responsibility as a society to say, well, wait a minute, here we have evidence that um, we are you know, keeping dandelions out of soccer fields using a chemical that has a link to some problem in child development. Can we solve this problem in another way? And if we can, is it not our moral obligation to insist that this now become the way we do things? I think I'm beginning to understand what you mean in here by a well-informed futility <laughs> syndrome. Yeah. Well-informed futility is an idea that psychologists hit upon in the 1960s, specifically to explain why the people watching television news about the Vietnam War came to feel more and more futile about it, whereas people who watched less television felt less futile. So it seemed like a paradox, right? The more informed you are, you think of knowledge as power, but in fact, there is a way in which knowledge can be incapacitating. And, and so the psychologists have went further and now have applied this to the environmental crisis and point out to us that whenever there's a problem that seems big and overwhelming, climate change would be one, and at the same time it's not apparent that your own actions have any mm. meaningful agency to, to solve that problem, you're filled with such a sense of despair or guilt or rage that it becomes unbearable. And so my response to that is basically what the book Raising Elijah is, is all about. So I try to take well-informed futility as my starting point and let people know that there is a way out of this. And but because we can't, I can't honestly tell you that the problem is less bad than it is, the response has to be that we scale up our actions. Um, so the problem is huge, and so there are, our actions have to be huge as well. Is that well. why you're going to jail? Yes, that's part of what I, I mean, I think what's required, I don't think you have to go to jail. <laughs> that, that's an act of conscience that I chose to take. But I do think that what's required at this moment is heroism. Um, and I, I'm mindful that when, when I read books to my children, they love to hear the, 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 the narrative of heroes. Um, and heroes that can come, overcome all kinds of odds when everyone is telling them they can't possibly win, and they do. Um, and I still believe in that um, very strongly. I was really moved by a conversation I had, and I describe this in the book, with a third grade teacher who taught um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis um, in the early 60s. Her class was so terrified that she had to suspend lessons and just talk to them about it. And, and at one point in asking her class questions about um, the situation, she realized how all of them fully expected to die. And so she asked, well, how many of you believe that there will be nuclear war within your lifetime? 
and every single child's hand went up except for one girl. And so she was wise enough to ask that one girl, well, what makes you think that you won't die? And the answer was, because my parents are peace activists, they're going to stop it. Hmm. So that made me realize, in, in thinking through this story, that my task as a parent is not to come up with the perfect climate change story to tell my children. It is not to hide the data on my desk when they're old enough to read it because I'm fearful that it will upset them. Instead, my job is to be a hero. My job is to go out there and stop it, to tell my children, look, climate change is a serious problem. It's a threat to your future, but mom is on the job. That's why I'm, you know, I'm up at 3.30 in the morning pushing the button on the crock pot. There's your dinner. You're going to have to do your own homework tonight. I'm off to Albany. I'm trying to stop fracking. This is why. And my kids, therefore, fully believe that I'm capable of, of doing this, right? Joseph Campbell told me that the hero's journey belongs to every man and woman. That's right. That everyone has to take her own route into the hero's journey. But every mother can't be a biologist. Every mother can't be going to jail to inform her children that she's out there on duty to make the world better. Can you give me a few practical things that mothers listening to us right now, and fathers, I may say, can do to protect their children in this, what you describe as a relatively hostile environment? Well, I see my job, Bill, is not helping people to feel that they can be safe, but rather showing and illuminating people where, where the paths for, for activism lie. Because this is, how, this is how I could sort of conceptualize it, I think. Um, going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, people who lived through that time could either build a bomb shelter or they could work on disarmament. But if you work on building a bomb shelter, then you actually create a sense that that this is less unthinkable than it might, than it should really be. And so sometimes you need to feel unsafe, to feel vulnerable, to say, I'm not going to build a beautifully appointed toxic-free bubble for my family because sooner or later my children have to go, grow up anyway and enter the world, right? Um, they, they're going to need some pollinators. They're going to need some coral reefs. They need the ice caps frozen so that the climate remains stable. And so it's my job um, to address myself to those issues. I can't tell people what they should do because I don't know what skill sets they have, but I can say that um, it is time now to play the Save the World Symphony. I don't know what instrument you hold, but you need to play it as best as you can and find your place in the score. You don't have to play a solo here. Um, but this is our task now. Um, in the same way that my father at age 18 was shipped off to Italy to fight Hitler's army, uh, it, it was his ta task of his generation to defeat global fascism. And at the time he was sent, it looked like an overwhelming job, right? I mean, it looked supposed to be the thousand year reign, and it looked, you know, uh, didn't look good for our side. Um, but uh, nevertheless, that was the right thing to do. Um, and my father, even though he suffered his whole life from what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder, was never prouder of the role that he played. And so at this point in our history, it is the environmental crisis that is the great moral crisis of our age. And in that, I don't want to be a good German. I don't want to be so paralyzed by well-informed futility syndrome that I don't look around me and see the signs of harm. I want to be one of the French resistance, one of the people who stand up and say, this is not right. This, no matter how difficult this is to change, we're going to have to change it. Sandra Steingraber, thank you very much for being with me and good luck to you. You're welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me. On Wednesday, the day after our conversation, the judge sent a Sandra Steingraber and two other activists to 15 days in jail after they pleaded guilty to trespassing. She's doing her time as we speak.
The toxic trespassers of which Sandra Steingraber warns afflict all creatures great and small, from humans to the humblest honeybee. As you may have read, honeybee populations are dying out all over the world and with a serious impact on our food supply. The U.S. Department of Agriculture says a quarter of the American diet, many of our fruits and vegetables especially, rely on pollination by honeybees. But something is killing them at an accelerated pace, and it's getting worse. 40 to 50 percent of the hives have been wiped out. More and more, the leading suspect is certain pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides, singly or in combination, that appear to be slaughtering bees outright or affecting brain and nerve functions. Beekeepers and activist groups are suing the Environmental Protection Agency to ban a kind of pesticide known as neonicotinoids. Not only are we dependent on the honeybee for much of what we eat, there is, of course, a grace and elegance they bring to the natural world that would diminish us all were they to disappear. The environmentalist and writer Bill McKibben narrates this short film by my friend and colleague, Peter Nelson. Let's think about bees in a hive. They go out every day when the temperature's high enough. They're not like other farm animals. They're this weird, wonderful cross between wild and domestic. And they head out into the open world. And they come back, as it were, with reports about that world, you know, what it's like uh, miles away. Uh, so one little bee yard someplace is a kind of hub for understanding a whole huge swath of territory, understanding whether it's being farmed well or treated as a kind of monoculture, whether it's being saturated in pesticides or whether it's producing a wide, beautiful variety of uh, flowers of all kinds. There are sort of accomplices in figuring out how healthy and together uh, our landscapes really are. One of the reasons I like being out with bees is that you do sort of slow down and enter their uh, world a little bit. I, I think they're quite beautiful. I like watching, I confess, I like watching in the early spring, the first few days of bees coming back with um, pollen and just sort of looking at the pollen in their saddlebags as they return and seeing what color it is and figuring out where it must have what tree it must have come from, or whatever. And they're, and they're beautiful in that you get a sense of their indefatigability. I mean, this is an impossible task to, you know, three grains at a time, produce enough honey to keep the colony alive over the winter, and yet they do it, you know? Um, and there's something quite beautiful about that, too. This perfect example of the idea that humans could cooperate with another species to both of their mutual benefit. Uh, we don't have very many examples of that in our uh, society, but that's what a beehive is. I mean, honeybees are like everything else on our planet uh, under all kinds of duress. I mean, the world in, that we jointly inhabit is changing with enormous speed. So none of the patterns that uh, any of us are used to exist in the same way anymore. Bees are under threat because landscapes keep changing. We get better at everything we do and take more cuttings of hay, you know, we leave less time for clover to just sit there in the field. Life's speeding up for them just like it is for us, and really neither of us are coping very well with the results of that. So, I mean, what we can do to help bees is exactly the same thing we can do to help ourselves. Uh, try to slow down the pace of change in the world around us. Uh, human societies aren't going to be able to cope with rapid climate change, and neither can most animal societies, uh, bees included. Uh, human societies can't cope with turning everything into a monoculture. 
neither can these. They're a remarkable reminder of the need for a certain kind of stability in terms of things like climate and the need for a certain kind of variety in terms of landscape and, and what's around us. We need to be making, at this point in our society, some wise decisions about the years ahead. And so we need to be using uh, some of that same focused and determined decision-making that, that bees have successfully employed over a great many millennia. It's a beautiful piece. Go to our website to take a look. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Our radio producer is Helen Sulfan. Our editor is Paul Henry Desjardins. Funding is provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Kohlberg Foundation, independent production fund with support from the Partridge Foundation, a John and Polly Guth charitable fund. The Clements Foundation, Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Ann Gumowitz, the Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation, the HKH Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman, and by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company. <laughs>